They only tried to detain me on spurious grounds in 2003. Uh, but prior to that, I survived a, a variety of, of assassination attempts. Welcome to the 22nd episode of Global, a monthly podcast where we share stories and insights from authentic voices on one country per episode. I'm Travis Green, and I'll be your host for today, and JT will be joining us by Skype a little bit down the road. Wanted to kick off this episode with a shout out to one of our loyal listeners, Max Townsend, who got our hint at the end of the last episode. The president of Zimbabwe, this episode's country, is Emerson Menagagua, a.k.a. The Crocodile. Zimbabwe is located in southern Africa. It is a landlocked country. One of the defining features has been the fact that it has been ruled for over 37 years by recently deposed President Mugabe. July 30th of this year, Zimbabwe underwent presidential and parliamentary elections, which uh, we're going to hear a lot more about in the interviews that we have today. If you have any feedback, corrections, or even compliments about our commentary on this or any other episode, please reach out to us. You can email us. That's podcast at IRI.org. Tweet us using the hashtag, hashtag global podcast, or share your thoughts in the review section. We've got a little bit of a different structure this time around. My host, JT, as I mentioned, will be joining us by Skype. For this episode, he spoke to four instead of the usual three interviews that we have. And following each interview, JT and I are going to have a little bit of a discussion, unpacking and following up on a few points for each one. First up, we've got John Robertson. Um, and this was actually on the ground in Harare while you were there, right? Yeah, I met with uh, Mr. Robertson in Harare you know, I think he uh, has a, an interesting perspective because he is a white Zimbabwean who's been there from the colonial period. Definitely. And for our listeners, uh, Mr. Robertson is an economist. He has commented extensively on many of the economic problems facing Zimbabwe today, including in a range of international publications. Let's go back to 1980s, 1990s, because we hear things like uh, Zimbabwe used to be the breadbasket of Africa uh, and was a place where investment could have flourished more readily. What, what happened in the 80s and 90s? Well, what happened in 1980 when Robert Mugabe became the leader of the country at the time he was prime minister, he declared the country to be a Marxist state. And he said that we, the government, are in business to wield power, not to share power with the business sector. So anything the business sector wants to do, they must seek first the permission of the government. And therefore, licenses and permits and uh, authorizations for every form of activity had to be obtained. The government then made very sweeping generalizations about things like wages and prices and rents and all sorts of things and said that from now on, all of these will be controlled by government. Wages will be set by government. Wages will be limited for the higher pay, paid executives and companies. But minimum wages for the working classes will be doubled. And all of these sort of things dramatically change the cost structure of the entire country. Now, and under the constitution that was imposed upon the country as a settlement, 
when we became independent Zimbabwe, the British government had said, please leave the farmers on the land for at least 10 years so that uh, you can work around new policies that will allow land reform to be accommodated in time to come. By the 1990s, uh, that had expired, but the government still left the commercial farmers in place. The farmers were very intent on remaining, of course, but there were political pressures because of the promises made by government that with the conquest of the colonial regime, the land would be taken back by the indigenous people. Now, the big issue here is that the land on which the commercial farmers were farming had a market value. And this was a, an arrangement that had been agreed to right at the beginning of the colonial period that the farmers who were going to farm properly, they needed money, so they needed the security to offer the banks. So land had to have a collateral value, and those farmers could borrow from the banks. And when the land reform program started, they took that value away from the land and declared the land to be the property of the state and therefore no longer suitable as security for bank loans. So that's what really crippled the country. Mm -hmm. People usually say it is the removal of white farmers and the replacement by black farmers. That's not the case. It was the removal of money that supported the farmers. You don't have to look at black and white farmers. No farmer can function if they don't have access to money. Farmer in a, in a modern way. You can farm as a peasant farmer using nothing but your labour, your wife's labour, your children's labour. If you get money, you can buy tractors, you can put irrigation in, you can buy other inputs that you need. You can employ labour and you can pay them long before you have a crop for sale. So when land redistribution, as it was called, was going on, what was it like here? Well, I mean, you were living here at the time, right? I was living here and what right was it like? Period. Especially as a white Zimbabwean. <laughs> yes, white Zimbabwean, and of course many of my family were farmers, and so I was really very much involved in the whole debate. But the issue really became one of um, sh shrinking supplies, the inability to service foreign debts, the inability therefore of the country to borrow money from abroad, and therefore we could not sustain the value of our currency. And so that's what led directly to the inflation, which soon became hyperinflation when government decided that because they could no longer collect the amounts they needed in tax, they simply had to print more money. Of course, that destroyed savings. Uh, savings is usually the original source of all investment capital. And when your domestic savings have gone, you now need the savings of people from other countries. And if you've discouraged them from coming because you've got such bad investment policies, of course, they won't come. So all of these added up to a very painful experience of hyperinflation where our savings were wiped out. Many banks failed. About half the banks in the country actually failed. And, of course, that meant very serious losses of the basic capital that had formerly been the mainstay of the business sector. That meant that most of the people had to drift into the informal sector to try and make a living. And there they can make a living only just making a few dollars a day. Our unemployment rate is about 85%. What's left of the people who can find a job, uh, well, half of them work for government. 
I'm paid with money the government is borrowing because they can't raise enough in tax. Uh, but the other half is struggling with, well, this changes the nature of what you can do for a living. We just had an election um, on July 30th. Yes. The declared winner and certified through a Supreme Court decision, Constitutional Court decision, was uh, Emerson Minagagwa of ZANU-PF. Yes. Who took power following a military transition or a coup, depending yes. on who you are and your name and your place. Um, and it's now up to him to lead the economy. Uh, his tagline is, we're open for business. But a lot of what you've told me here uh, makes it seem like business, even if it's open, it's hard to do. So is that really the right tagline? Well, that would be true. It is hard to do. If he keeps the promises he's made in the electioneering campaigns, I think we will become a paradise. We could get the investors back. We could get our farmers back to more productive levels. We can link the banks to the farmers again. But this is the real problem. We don't see much chance of these promises being kept. This is really a crippled economy. And the main crippling effect was to remove the link between the banks and the farms. What we need now is to restore the value of land in the marketplace. And if the banks here could tell banks abroad that they have very good security for loans, the banks here could borrow money from banks in other countries, and the banks here could then lend that to local farmers. So we could make a big, quick change if they were to agree to that. But they've shown resistance against putting the land back into the market. You mentioned uh, the campaign promises for paradise. And, uh, yeah. uh, I mean, campaigns, of course, always have such high levels of rhetoric. But let's look at the record. So the takeover occurs in November. Yes. Right? Um, what has this transitional or new government done since Mugabe's departure, uh, on the record, what are the actions? One, this is of importance, and that is that the indigenization policy was removed for manufacturers, and the manufacturers who might want to start now will not be told to relinquish 51% of the shares of your new company. And the manufacturers who are here already, many of them struggling to survive, are now being relieved of the need to surrender 51% of their shares. The rest of what has happened has been in the form of promises that have yet to be kept. If they are kept, of course, we might hit the ground running maybe next week when we know who the ministers are going to be. We don't know how much authority they will have. And we still have a, a communist structure in government. You have to see this is still in place. Uh, the president is at the top. Under the president comes a politburo. Every member of the Politburo is chosen by the President. Under the Politburo comes a Central Committee. Every member of the Central Committee is chosen by the President. Under that comes the Cabinet. And every Cabinet Minister is chosen by the President. Under that comes Parliament. Long way down. Little influence. This is not a, dis a description of democracy. If I'm a young Zimbabwean today, do I have an opportunity 10 years from now? Is the economy going to be better? What, are you hopeful about the future? I am hopeful, but I must say that to answer that question, I would depend on the foreign investors coming in 
with the capital needed, we can make use of our own skills and our own resources, but they need to bring in the latest methods. We can't afford to develop them ourselves. We need to import capital goods, machinery for industry, and we need to be able to pay for it with money we don't have. So that means we need equity finance from investors. And so we must try to make this country as attractive as possible. We have to dramatically improve our investment climate. And that means we must get government to back off, get out of the way. As I mentioned at the beginning, they said we are there to run the country and not to share power with the business sector. They must now accept that the business sector needs to be empowered and respected. So that's the contest we're in. And we've got to rise to the occasion by turning this country into an investment haven. So JT, a couple of questions that I had. As Zimbabwe tries to open up to investment, does the policy that all land belongs to the government, is that still in place? And how will that impact potential for growth? The amendments have been made in the post Mugabe era. In fact, it's, a, it's something that, you know, President Mnangagwa has worked on during that transition period. But this land policy and indigenization policy in general, both of which I think Mr. Robinson covers quite extensively, they're just disruptive to private land ownership rights and they thwart investment. And frankly, this is basic economics. If you're going to exist in a capitalist system, you've got to provide opportunity for people to own land and have confidence that that land belongs to them and it can't be taken away by the government given the fact that some of this stuff has not been fully uh, repealed, provides those doubts. And those doubts will impact economic investment. They'll impact the way in which the private sector inside the country does business, and certainly foreign investors. How has Zimbabwe's business community reacted to President Menengagwa's election? Well, the jury is still out, but it's clear that the formal business sector is suffering under the current economic environment. So Menengagwa or not, something needs to happen to improve their conditions so that more citizens cross over from the large informal sector to the more formal one, you know, getting more people into the formal economy will improve government revenues, it'll grow investor confidence, and it certainly will move Zimbabwe on a more regularized path to growth, something that's more sustainable. And I think, you know, Mr. Robinson talks a lot about that as well. You know, for the international business investor and foreign investor in general, the land issue, indigenization issues continue to be a driving factor. You know, there's only so many things that the Zimbabweans are going to be able to do, the ZANU-PF government is going to be able to do on its own to fix the economy. They're going to need outside help. But with outside help, we're not talking about just the Chinese. We're talking about bringing in the World Bank, the IMF, these Western institutions where, you know, assistance comes with a greater price tag, which is, you know, let your people have a say, grow the governance structures, the democratic elements. Those have been challenges, right? So that's where this conversation keeps coming back up. More so than just the reforms that uh, President Menengagwa has put in place, Mr. Robertson really talked about a lot of the unkept promises that he had made. What are some of the kind of larger unkept promises that, that he was referencing? Listen, that's what all politicians do in these types of situations. They promise. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, it's, it's less about accountability and more about persuading someone to put their hope in you. And I think, if, you know, frankly speaking, several of ZANOPF's promises are things they cannot do on their own, as I've said. You know, they can't make marginal improvements to their economy uh, beyond what, what are some of the basic changes unless they transform themselves um, and really work with international partners and open themselves up to the West. 
there are several promises made in Nicaragua on the campaign trail, um, transforming different sectors of the economy, the education system, uh, and obviously getting more jobs in the country. But none of that can happen until other transformational issues take place. Because anything that's done um, without those other issues, like changing governance, changing democratic rights, making sure that that stuff is in place, anything that does happen is unsustainable, right? It can be reversed by the next person. After hearing all that, this next interview is going to be rather interesting. You spoke with Paul Manguana. Mr. Manguana is a practicing lawyer and the Secretary of Legal Affairs for the ZANU-PF party. He's been a member of ZANU-PF since Zimbabwe's independence struggle and has been active in national politics since right around 1998, um, as well as being a member of parliament from 2000 to 2013. So let's give it a listen. Well, welcome to the to the podcast, Mr. Manguana. And your time in government, you served as a member of parliament, um, and then yes, event- I did serve as a member of parliament from 2000 and held quite a, a number of portfolios, including being minister responsible for indigenization and empowerment, a controversial program which I was uh, given responsibility to to market to the country. Then there has been a revision of that program of indigenization now. It's no longer applying to every business as such, but only specific business in the mining sector. So, yes, I was a minister in government under President Mugabe from 2000 right up to 2013. But right now, I'm no longer in government. Just going on the indigenization, a lot of people might not understand what indigenization is. Could you perhaps maybe explain that a little bit more? Yes, Zimbabwe was under colonization for almost 90 years. Uh, one of the key attractions which led to the colonization of Zimbabwe was uh, its good natural resources. So when um, the British came to occupy Zimbabwe uh, using force, they took over all the rich and good land to the white settlers, who then were enjoying uh, wealth out of the exploitation of the land to the exclusion of the black majority or the indigenous people. This is exactly what led to the to the armed liberation struggle when uh, uh, the blacks realized that uh, they could hardly earn a living out of the land, yet the rich pieces of land were now in the hands of the white colonialists. After the, the Zimbabwe obtained independence, the land issue was not resolved. Uh, President Gabi's government then said, look, the only way we can take back our land is to take it by force. So they forcibly removed the white settlers who were on the land. This is what led to what is currently known as the land problem in Zimbabwe. Now let's go to November of last year. There were some serious changes in the country, and you were at the forefront of that. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about those changes and sort of the role you yes, played. I did participate when there was this change in leadership when President Mugabe um, was moved from power. I offered myself to be a legal advisor to the military, and I was an advisor throughout that process, starting with um, advising my party leadership as to how they could constitutionally remove President Mugabe through an impeachment process. We then uh, asked the parliament to use the impeachment provision in the constitution, and when parliament was just about to vote, that's when former President Mugabe sent a letter of resignation to parliament to say, don't impeach me, I'm prepared to go. So in many ways, your contribution to the party at that time was really to be a legal architect of the pressuring process to move the party forward. Yes, I, was, uh, I was 
the legal advisor to see that we get him removed using the constitution. As you come into this post-Mugabe period, there was a lot of changes within the country leading up to this election that just concluded on July 30th. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about some of the reforms that the new government put into place in the period between November and this most recent election. The major change which has taken place since becoming in of uh, President Mnangagwa is to bring in this spirit of engagement. He believes that we should engage with the opposition, we should discuss whatever challenges we may be facing. He thinks Zimbabwe should not be isolated. Let us uh, attract more foreign direct investment. Started talking to the British to say, look, uh, let's bygones be bygones. Let's talk to each other and correct whatever mistakes may have happened in the past. So that's why his leadership is called a new dispensation. Where we have made mistakes, we must be able to admit and correct the mistakes so that we join the international community as a member of the international family. And one of the challenges, of course, was this incident that occurred following uh, the elections. I think this was on August 1st. There were, there were some... It was a terrible incident. Uh, and it was a terrible incident. Some people died. The military, by some outsiders, has been blamed for this. What are your thoughts in terms of the role of the military in, in this security incident and other security incidents in the country? Well, the military is supposed to be confined to the barracks. And the police are also supposed to be doing their own work. Home security is uh, the preserve of the police. But unfortunately, when this particular incident happened, but it's alleged that uh, the police were refusing for political reasons to do their own way to stop the demonstrators from threatening peace-loving Zimbabweans who wanted to, to go about their way. So uh, it is unfortunate that uh, uh, we are a divided country and a lot of work needs to be done to restore trust and confidence. The police um, must play their role of ensuring that every citizen can go uh, about their business without any fear. Structures of the state do that to the partisan. We still have that challenge where we must engender trust among the structures of government who are supposed to maintain peace. And I'm hopeful that every every part of the state is going to do their work so that you don't involve the military in matters which are supposed to be handled by the police. And the way forward in terms of bringing the other half of the country along, the other half that voted for the up the other candidates, how do you bring them along? We know that. Uh, uh, most of the urban areas are under the control of the opposition, and most of the rural areas are under the control of the ruling party. Uh, but what makes Zimbabwe is a combination of both. We have one country, and let, let's, let's run it together. So we need to talk to each other. These are very optimistic times, I think, for the new dispensation and the ZANU-PF government. Uh, of course, you know, in my speaking with some of economic experts, they paint a very long climb out of economic despair and sort of coming back to a place where uh, Zimbabwe can be a competitive market. What is your what is your thought about the future? Where do you see uh, the country going in the next five to ten years? I'm very positive that uh, we will not take as long as uh, probably other economies have, uh, have done because we are endowed with natural resources. And I think that uh, Zimbabwe is capable of turning around in a very, very short time because it has good, good soils, it enjoys good climate, it has good rich minerals. But we need to get the resources to be reinvested properly in, in the country. We need to, to, to regrow our agriculture. We don't have to rely on the, on the, 
on the natural rain because we've got a lot of dams in the country. That coupled with the rich mineral resources, which if we if we make use of it and export the mineral the minerals and get more foreign currency, we should be able to turn around our country in the record time. So JT, I've got a couple of questions to kind of follow up Mr. Manguana's interview that you just had. He mentions his role as a legal advisor to the military and how he was able to justify constitutionally the removal of Mugabe in last November. Can you explain to us a little bit what kind of the constitutional or legal basis was for that removal? Well, of course, they tried to use the party structure and the party constitution to engineer removal of President Mugabe from the top of his party, and then a number of factors were in play in the parliament to kind of move a vote of no confidence against him, sort of move him out of the presidency. But the fact of the matter is, if it sounds like a coup and it looks like a coup, it's probably a coup. You know, there remains this sort of aversion to the use of the word coup due to issues related to foreign aid eligibility, internal politics and bodies like the African Union, right? So we call them military takeovers or controlled transitions or whatever you want to deal with. But the fact is, whatever you call it, this was not a democratic transition. They strong-armed an elected president to resign through a military takeover of the institutions. Um, Mugabe didn't have a choice, and neither did the people of Zimbabwe, by the way. Of course, Mugabe's departure was met with adulation. People were in the streets cheering, but the manner of the transition was not inclusive. did not seek a deal with issues of reconciliation, power-sharing, you know, those are two two key factors that, you know, had they been brought into the transition process, it may have improved Zimbabwe's trajectory for international help and frankly gained it, given it more democratic legitimacy going into the elections. Gotcha. Towards the end, you and uh, Mr. Manguana discuss Zimbabwe's future prosperity, and he really sees a lot of it based on natural resources. Obviously, there is a lot of arguments and debates about kind of what the impact is for a country to rely on natural resources for its prosperity. And a lot of this can also be linked back to um, how democratic a country is. What are some of the risks that you see for Zimbabwe if it were to rely on its natural resources for growth? Well, we have seen the effects, I mean, in a number of countries, I'm sure, you know, in the region you work in. And and for me in Africa, where natural resource like growth can have a negative impact, right? over-reliance and serious dependency on those resources uh, stifles diversification of the economy. Such growth also creates easy money that flows without the best accountability structures. And the dangers are many, which is why it's important that ZANOPF understands that being open for business is not just a matter of transactions, not just a matter of people showing up with money and setting up businesses. It's a wider issue that requires reform, it requires greater openness. You know, yes, it's true. Zimbabwe has real lush resources, but it can't be the only way back to economic solvency. Definitely. And that's a lot of the pitfalls that Venezuela has fallen into in recent years, which should be a warning for other countries as well. Well, let's uh, kind of move on to the next guest. We've got Liz Lewis. Liz is the deputy director of IRI's Africa division. She has worked at IRI for over 11 years. And as we'll hear coming up, she's focused a lot of her time on Zimbabwe. So we work together, Liz. So maybe generally you could speak to us about democracy in Zimbabwe, just so our, our listeners get a sense of that. 
So I started working on Zimbabwe shortly following the 2008 elections, which I think for many people, especially those of us who watch Zimbabwe closely, um, were a pivotal point in the country's history. Um, it's an election where the opposition, the late Morgan Shangarai, who's the leader of the Movement for Democratic Change, who was uh, widely believed to have won the first round of the presidential election, um, and in the aftermath of that election, was violently uh, put down the opposition. There was widespread detentions, murders, abuses of opposition activists. And in the process of trying to find a resolution of this, um, it was agreed that Morgan Shangarai would not pursue um, the presidency. And there was a global peace agreement that was signed that led to a government of national unity. Um, that unity government included Morgan Shangarai as prime minister and a number of other um, notable figures, including um, the, the presidential candidate for the MDC alliance, uh, Nelson Chamisa, who was um, recently in the headlines, currently is, but also many others. In 2013, um, in, in, a, in a subsequent election following you know, constitutional amendments or constitutional overhaul, more, uh, Robert Mugabe was reelected. And that's where we kind of were in the lead up um, to what turned out to be a pivotal uh, moment in November of 2017, when a, when there, a coup was staged to um, depose President Mugabe, which led to uh, a transitional period in the lead up to the July 30th elections. So um, the, the period between November 2017 and July 2018 were seen by many as a key opportunity for democracy in that country. In the recent elections, the opposition put up a good showing in terms of votes. The opposition has even come out post-election and said they won the election, challenged that result in court, and even after the court ruled against their petition, stated that they will conduct possibly even a mock swearing-in of the opposition candidate Nelson Chimisa. In congressional testimony that you gave earlier this year, you said that, quote, opposition parties have been in a state of general disarray since the 2013 elections. The days immediately surrounding Changarai's death, this is the former leader of MDC, the late Morgan Changarai, quote, have put a spotlight on MDCT's internal challenges to unify people, compete for votes in just a few short months. One, how did the 2013 elections leave the opposition? And two, what is your assessment of how the opposition was able to put together a coalition of voters for this most recent election? The 2013 elections, as I'm, you know, as we discussed previously, they were coming out of a unity government following the violent 2008 post-election period. There were very high expectations for the opposition and its performance in 2013, both domestically um, within the opposition and kind of within the international arena. They did not secure a victory in the presidency. They um, didn't have a great performance in the parliamentary um, election. And so it was really a, a setback for the opposition. So some of what happened in the fragmentation of the opposition is to be expected in a situation like that. But also, I think, in a, in a one-party dominant system um, that does limit freedoms, I think the fragmentation of the opposition is often a strategy by the ruling party. And, and often there are just serious challenges to unification of an opposition um, in conditions of that nature. Um, so coming into what was an unexpected opportunity in 2018, the opposition was very fragmented, a lot of factionalism, um, a number of new parties. Um, so we saw a number of actors in this non-ZANU-PF space um, that really kind of shook up the elements leading into 2018. And so kind of following the coup and the death of Morgan Shangarai shortly thereafter, there were 
attempts to unify the MDC alliance and what came to be the MDC alliance um, did have a number of challenges. There were tensions, <laughs> to say the least, between um, Nelson Chamisa, who ended up being the MDC alliance candidate for president, the most well-known opposition candidate, and other leaders within the MDC. And um, Chamisa kind of took the reins as the president of the party in what many see as a also not not so democratic move. He claimed to have been de designated as the successor to, to Shanghai by him on his deathbed. And then ultimately, there were 23 presidential candidates. That's a lot of choice for a Zimbabwean voter. But of course, aside from Minangagwa and Chamisa, the rest of the candidates only received about 6% of that vote. But had that vote gone to the opposition, to the leading opposition candidate, he may have won the contest. This fractured opposition, how do they come together in a, in a post-election period to sort of look into the next election? Uh, it seems like that's a difficult task at the moment. Yeah, it's a hugely difficult task. Um, President Menengagwa or whoever won the election needed 50% plus one to win to secure a first-round victory. Um, President Menengagwa received 50.8% of the vote. So it was a very, very slim margin. Nelson Chamisa received 44.3, I believe, percent of the vote. So that 6% was crucial um, in, in terms of securing that first round victory for presidential, President Menengagwa. The thing that people don't widely talk about when talking about the 2018 elections in Zimbabwe is the parliamentary contest. A lot of Zimbabwe watchers saw this as actually the key to making headway in demo with democracy in Zimbabwe in the next couple of years. The opposition needed to secure at least, they needed to avoid a, a supermajority in parliament, which unfortunately didn't happen. ZANU-PF secured over 66% of the seats in parliament. So they do have the ability to amend the constitution kind of on their own at this point. So in terms of what the opposition needs to do, I mean, they definitely need to determine what their structure is going to be moving forward if the MDC alliance is going to continue to be kind of the organizing principle of a number of political parties. But also, you know, the opposition needs to think really hard about how it is going to maybe take advantage of some more moderate voices within parliament. There are a lot of critical kind of service delivery economic needs in Zimbabwe that, you know, I think citizens are really interested in hearing an alternative voice for. So there definitely is room for an opposition. They just need to figure out how they're going to, to do that in an organized um, and streamlined way. Let's go to the election quickly. You spent some time in the country in the lead up to the elections, not only as an international observer, but also supporting some of IRI's own programs on the ground. How did you feel being in the country? What did you see in Zimbabweans that you spoke with? What were their thoughts and hopes in terms of what these elections could bring? It was kind of interesting. There was an optimism that things maybe would change for them in their day-to-day -day life um, with this election, though I, there was, you know, that was definitely met with a skepticism that anything would really change. So you kind of had this double-sided coin that we were um, experiencing from the Zimbabwean people that we engaged with. So it was interesting dynamic. Um, you know, looking at the pre-election space, again, it was kind of this duality we saw. I mean, it was definitely improved over previous elections in Zimbabwe. There was opening and campaign space, more freedom to assemble, though there were still significant challenges. Um, the media space is still very restricted for alternative voices in Zimbabwe. There were serious concerns about citizens' belief that they could vote in secret and that they had true freedom of conscience in the election. 
and there were definite kind of resource disparities um, amongst the contenders. And so there's still, you know, considerable challenges that we saw in the pre-election period. Then there was a long count at night. Uh, Mm -hmm. You have to sort of lock yourself in with the polling officials. The result took time to come out and maybe talk a little bit about how that led into some of the challenges and and certainly this very unfortunate level of violence on August 1st. Starting on election night, the counting process took very, very long. Um, I personally was in a polling station that had vote vote counting and kind of certification going into well into the morning, 2, 3 a.m. Across our observers and kind of um, across the country, this was a situation. So Vote counting took a very long time. And then the Zimbabwe Election Commission had up to five days to announce the results, but there was wide expectation that they would have um, announced them quicker than they had. One of the things that contributed to that was they were releasing parliamentary results. So assuming you have polling station level results and you're able to announce the winners of parliamentary races, you should then, because they're all on one sheet, be able to also announce presidential results on a kind of rolling basis. And that wasn't happening. It created a lot of um, suspicion suspicion and anxiety, which ultimately led to, on August 1st, the Zimbabwe Election Commission had been expected to, to start announcing presidential results on August 1, and then they announced that they weren't going to do that. Um, and that led to, in Harare, um, protests in the street, which were put down very heavy-handedly by the Zimbabwean military, including six people dying, um, people being shot in the back as they were running away, women being beaten, kind of very, very heavy-handed kind of put down of protests in the post-election period, which really marred what was a very peaceful election day, um, really kind of dashed a lot of hope in people that this election was different. So, JT, Liz referenced some of the different elections the MDC has contested in the past. Uh, What I'm curious about right now is who are the supporters, broadly speaking, both for the opposition and for ZANU-PF? Because it seems like the country is very closely divided and has been for a long time. Well, you know, Travis, broadly speaking, you can break the country into two political zones, so to speak. You really have rural voters, which is mainly ZANU-PF, and urban voters, which is the MDC alliance and other opposition groups. I mean, ZANU has historically worked hard to cultivate and command the voters from the the less connected countryside. And uh, those are the folks, of course, who also have benefited from some of the land uh, reform and other things that have happened in the country. Um, These voters also have a greater dependence on the state. um, So they have and they're also less engaged in the day-to-day politics of the country. So in many ways, you know, they, they're sort of easier doing, you know, to push around. And I, and I think that's what you're seeing in some of the intimidation tactics that were used, like food aid and others in the lead-up to the elections that were reported uh, from the countryside. But, you know, Travis, as with all of these African liberation parties, you know, those who witness and participate in the struggle have a greater affinity towards them. And those people tend to live in the rural areas. We've seen similar dynamics in places like South Africa, right? The main opposition in that country has done well in the metro municipal areas, but when you get out to the countryside, it just changes. Same thing in Uganda. You know, this is not unique to, to, to Zimbabwe. Definitely, yeah. Uganda came to mind as well for me when you're, when you're mentioning that. Finally, you spoke with David Coltart, and uh, David Coltart is a trained human rights lawyer. He has been active in Zimbabwean politics since the early 80s. But he was involved with the MDC party, 
where he even served in parliament from 2000 to 2008 and held a minister post. In the years prior to the formation of the Movement for Democratic Change, what was the political opposition like in Zimbabwe? Well, at independence in 1980, there was one major political party in opposition to ZANU-PF called ZAPU, led by Joshua Nkomo, who was an African nationalist on the same level as, as Robert Mugabe. In the first seven years after independence, there were civil disturbances which culminated in the signing of a unity accord which effectively amalgamated Robert Mugabe's parties on EPF and ZAPU, but in reality swallowed ZAPU. At that time, Zimbabwe had an effective one-party state. That was until the trade union movement, in conjunction with church groups and civic groups, got together, which led to the formation of the Movement for Democratic Change on the 11th of September 1999. So you come into 1999, you have this new vehicle, this new political vehicle, this party called the Movement for Democratic Change. How did you organize yourselves to run for elections in, in 2000? What were the, the major challenges of putting up? Uh, an opposition group together to a very entrenched ZANU-PF government? Well, the, the immediate challenge was that uh, it was a very broad church. It had no clear ideological policy base, so that the immediate challenge was to agree on policies that everyone in this very broad church were happy with. And obviously our main focus was on constitutional reform. I think that ZANU-PF initially underestimated the NDC and only saw its real strength when there was a constitutional referendum. The constitutional referendum had been something organized by the government, and in February 2000, we defeated that, that referendum by quite a substantial margin. And I think that that gave Zanu a warning that the NBC was strong enough to defeat them at the poll, and we immediately saw a lot of violence started to be employed against us and, and our supporters. The general election um, in 2000 was meant to be held in April 2000, and what ZANU-PF did was it postponed the election until June to give themselves time to soften up the electorate. And they did that, and we saw uh, wholesale acts of violence and abductions. Uh, many people were detained. It culminated in this very violent environment for the elections. But notwithstanding that, the NDC almost beat down EPF. They only lost the House of Assembly by two seats. In the immediate period after the election, uh, you have these new seats in Parliament uh, with this new party and the ideology. Uh, what was sort of the initial experience in Parliament? And, and how, did, how did the MDC start to come together as a real strong opposition? Following the June 2000 election, we had a uh, highly energized and, and efficient group of parliamentarians. Our initial focus was to try and pursue the agenda of constitutional reform, the need for constitutional reform. reform. Of course, ZANU at the same time was trying to tighten up legislation to create a coercive environment as they needed to push ahead with their land reform program to give them what would, I mean, really fascist means of taking over land. At the same time, they sought to make the political environment much harder for us. So they introduced at that time the Public Order and Security Act, which not only made it a lot 
more difficult for us to hold rallies and the like, but also gave them a whole swathe of new laws with which to arrest and detain our members, and including our leadership. And some of those laws were used against you, right? Uh, you were detained, you had been detained. I had my house searched and raided on several occasions. They only tried to detain me on spurious grounds in 2003. Uh, but prior to that, I survived a, a variety of, of assassination attempts. And uh, some of my colleagues were not as lucky as I was. Uh, one of my colleagues, Patrick Nabanyama, was abducted on June the 19th, 2000, and was, has never been seen again. So I, you know, I consider myself very fortunate compared to some of my colleagues. Uh, we move forward to today, where you have an election where the MDC believes it won, or at the very least deserves, a runoff vote. And that has now led to the MDC presidential candidate, Nelson Chamisa, declaring himself the president and wanting to be sworn in uh, as the people's president. What are your thoughts on that process and where we stand today in terms of the political way forward in the country? Some of this sounds like deja vu. The major significant change is that whereas the military managed to disguise themselves in the past, the coup of November 2017 revealed the true nature of military strength in the country. And they installed, as you know, Emerson Manangagwa, knowing that we had to have an election this year. Whilst this was one of the more violence-free elections, I think as a lawyer, it, it was the most illegal election. I've never seen such uh, systematic breaches of the Constitution and the electoral law in, in any election I have participated in. There were uh, serial breaches of the Constitution, serial breaches of the electoral law. The uh, Electoral Commission, in my view, was one of the most biased commissions I've ever experienced. And, and so I believe that Benisa should have won, probably did win, but at the very least, Menangagwa did not get over the 50% plus one, and there should have been a runoff election. This is mere speculation now, but if you look at those opinion polls from January, you can see that all the momentum was with Chamisa. Menangagwa's campaign had pretty much stalled, and I think in a runoff election, Chamisa would have won comfortably. So from the conversation with him, one of the questions that I had was, you know, what is it that made it difficult for opposition parties to form following independence? Obviously, ZANU-PF went into wanting to be a one-party state, but how did they really just end up with all of the control? Well, Mugabe ZANU-PF uh, rose to power after a brutal struggle for independence. I mean, you don't remember, I guess you remember that. You know, that, that hangover took some time. You know, Mugabe and his military chiefs were also conditioned to the military ways of governing, command and control, and Opposition parties don't do well in such spaces because alternative views and opposition ideas, you know, they frankly don't have room to grow because they're not welcome. And I think, um, you know, again, if we're talking about democratic transformation of renewal in Zimbabwe, it's going to have to mean that other political voices can be given an equal platform. And in cases where they're not able to compete, where it's a David against Goliath, they need to be given more resources, more so they need to be risen up. Because we are really dealing with uh, a, a deficit of competition, viable competition. And, and frankly, you know, if you look at what Nelson Chamisa was able to do in this election, what Morgan Changer was able to do in previous elections, 
I mean, the fact that they were able to do it under the conditions in which they did it uh, demonstrates something and tells you a lot about where things stand in terms of the eyes of the Zimbabweans and what they want. That's what makes the democratic system great, right? Allows you to have options. So to boil down the four interviews and conversation that we just had with JT, there are three main takeaways that we want to hold on to. First off, Zimbabwe's economic problems are the result of decades of poor policy decisions on the part of the ZANU-PF regime. At this point, it's going to be very hard for Zimbabwe to jumpstart its economy without help from the international community. But a lot of that assistance is predicated on democratic and human rights progress inside the country. Secondly, While the July 30th elections were an improvement in some respects compared to elections over the past two decades, Zimbabwe still has a lot of work to do in terms of restoring public trust in the electoral process. Problems with voter registration, concerns about the secrecy of the ballot, voter intimidation, and the lack of an independent media significantly undermined public trust in the process. And third, a strong political opposition is essential to Zimbabwe's success. Many of the concerns about political stability that have scared away foreign investment could be addressed if the opposition in Zimbabwe had greater capacity to hold the ruling party accountable. Despite a number of factors outside of the control, the opposition would benefit from putting some thought into its structure, its messaging moving forward, as well as how to work with some of the existing structures to push their policy agenda. So we'd really like to thank our guests. Big thanks to Liz Lewis, IRI's Deputy Director for Africa, for sharing with us her experience of working on Zimbabwe and being a part of the International Electoral Observation there this year. You can follow her on Twitter at LizLewis26. Thanks to John Robertson for laying out some of the economic problems and challenges that Zimbabwe faces as it tries to grow and move forward. You can catch more of his writing in several places, including The Economist and Bloomberg. We'd also like to extend our appreciation to Paul Manguana for presenting ZANU-PF's perspective on the recent transitions that Zimbabwe has gone through. And finally, a big thank you to David Coltart for talking with us about the evolution of the opposition party within Zimbabwe. You can get more from him on Twitter at David Coltart. So as we normally do, we want to leave you with a hint about our upcoming episode. The hint for this month is the president of what country formerly owned one of the most popular soccer clubs in Latin America. Tweet us, email us, leave us a comment with your best guess. We'll see you next time.